from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Mahnaz Javid. Mahnaz came to the U.S. from Iran as an exchange high school student. After the Islamic Revolution in Iran, Mahnaz ended up staying in the U.S., she is co-founder of the educational service organization called the Mona Foundation, named after a Baha'i high school student by the name of Mona Mahmoud Nizad, who was executed in Iran for her beliefs. I started the interview by asking Mahnaz where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. So I grew up in a very small town in the southern part of Iran. It's a desert country, an oil country. My father was a physician in the oil company, so... The town was named Masjid Suleiman, a very low population, mostly people who were involved in the oil fields. I grew up in a very loving family, but in a very restrictive environment. We had a circle of our friends, almost walked everywhere. There wasn't much to do in that area outside going to the facilities that the oil company provided for the people that work for it. That was my experience. So when you say restricted, it was restricted because you were a Baha'i? Yes. So the Baha'i activities were illegal in that town where I lived for as long as I remember. And so we could not have an LSA or any administrative body. And the friends we met in ones and twos for Baha'i functions. I remember having my Baha'i classes conducted by Mr. Jose, who later became a martyr, every Friday morning, and he'd come home to our home with myself and my sisters and would have the Baha'i classes for us. So restricted in that sense as a Baha'i child, but also restrictive because it was just an oil town. It wasn't really much of anything else except the oil company, and so the circle of people that we interacted with were very confined to, to people who will work for the companies. Now, you mentioned the term LSA. Can you explain to our listeners what an LSA is? A local Spiritual Assembly is an administrative institution of the Baha'i faith. The members are elected annually by secret vote, and it's a body that administers the affairs of the Baha'i community at the local level. Baha'is do not have priests or clergy, and therefore our administrative institutions are given the responsibility to administer the affairs, including marriages, births, and consultation on the topic that are of interest to the community. And you're saying that the LSA was an illegal institution where you lived? Yes, the Baha'is were not allowed by the security, the SAVAK at that time, to organize themselves or elect their institution or our LSA, our local spiritual assembly. 
And why is that? Or why was that? The Baha'i faith is a religious minority in Iran, and it is not recognized as a form of religion in the country. The faith has been persecuted from the very, very beginning of its inception in 1844 to this date. And at that time, in the small towns in particular, this restriction was very visible and reinforced. And why was there so much hatred toward the Baha'i faith? I think Islam, or at least the Muslims who were in that area, believed that Muhammad was the last prophet of God, and they could not admit or accept the fact that Baha'u'llah, that Baha'is believed that Baha'u'llah was the latest manifestations of God, manifestation of God who had come with a new message. And they considered Baha'u'llah, the Bab, the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, and then Baha'u'llah as heretic, and therefore their followers, the Baha'is, as also heretic. And so in that sense, they felt that we were anti-religion and therefore persecuted to the extent that they could. And did you experience persecution personally? I remember very vividly when I was in the second grade. Uh, actually, a couple of couple of memories that uh, always have stayed with me. One was that I was in second grade and we were studying Persian history. And there was a paragraph about the Bob. And in that paragraph, it said that the person of the Bob who claimed to be the manifestation of God, but that his movement was quelched and his cause died with his martyrdom in 1850. And I recall that at that time, and I was young, maybe in second, third grade, I was young, I turned to my friend and I said, well, that's not true because I'm here and I'm a Baha'i and I follow the Bob. And of course, the reaction of my other friends and the teachers were not very welcoming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, that's one. And the other one, one was that when we were kids going to feast, I remember there was a house close by and we went to feast and we would walk to it and there were a couple of kids around the streets who started throwing stone at us and calling us bad Baha'is. And then, of course, I remember because of it, we really had to try to be the best that we could in the classroom. And so I do recall our teachers continually saying, this bad Baha'i is doing better in her homework than you <laughs> than the rest of the class. <laughs> <laughs> so that, those are the small recollections of that time. So how long did you live in that area of Iran? I was there till I was 13, uh, first year of high school, and then I left. And uh, we moved to Tehran, and I was in Tehran for a couple of years before moving to the States in the late 60s. Was life better in Tehran? Well, Tehran was a much, much larger city with a huge high population. And our neighbors, we had three or four or five neighbors on our street alone who were Baha'is. We, in fact, had our own feast that uh, we all got together with about eight or nine families. So I think that the interactions were much freer, the number of people were much larger, and therefore the experiences were completely different. That's where I learned for the first time, went to a Baha'i summer school when uh, the first year we had moved to Tehran, went to Hadire, the first summer school I ever went. Why is it that you left Iran? I came to U.S. as an exchange student to finish my high school. 
and that was a program I got admitted to and I wanted to come. My brother had, my sister had already left home. My father was a wonderful person. Uh, both my parents are very, very forward-looking, very progressive in their thinking and in the way they treated all of us. And my mother was in particular very keen on having all her daughters finish higher education. And therefore, as soon as we got closer to graduating from high school, they send us out to other countries because the educational opportunities were limited in Iran. So I was admitted to this foreign exchange program, and I finished my high school in a little town upstate New York called Phelps, New York, and then graduated from Columbus High in Ohio, and then I stayed afterwards. I went back to Iran for a short while, but I came back and I've been here since. What was your first reaction when you first came to the United States? My profound experience was when I realized that I could actually talk to those around me freely about the faith and say that I was a Baha'i. In Iran, we had to really guard ourselves. We had to be very careful about who we told that we were Baha'is. We never were permitted to talk about the faith or teach the faith. It's a very restrictive, very, very restrictive environment. So when I first came to the U.S. and I went to high school, I stayed with an American family, and this family asked me whether or not I wanted to go to a church and said, well, I'm a Baha'i. And they went and found a Baha'i family close by, and they made the point of taking me to their house for Sunday classes every week. And I was just profoundly, profoundly touched by, A, the fact that they really respected their faith, and B, that they helped me to become one. And I think that that was one of the most profound realizations that I had in that, in that I had the freedom to talk about my faith and that I didn't have to be afraid. What did you do after you graduated from high school? I started university for a couple of years. Uh, I went to University of Houston and finished my first two years. And following that, the House of Justice had begun inviting young people to go to Haifa. And so I volunteered and I spent two years in Haifa as a youth volunteer. That was in 77 through 79, a very long time ago. And then I came back and finished my education again. What is the House of Justice? The House of Justice is the international organizing institution of the Baha'i faith. It's elected once every five years by national delegates of each of the countries in which Baha'is reside. The Universal House of Justice stands and advocates the principles of justice that is brought up by Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. And Haifa is in Israel? The Haifa is a very beautiful small city in Israel, yes. And that is where the remains of the founders of the faith, both the Bab and Baha'u'llah, are laid to rest and hence are considered as a Baha'i holy place for Baha'is all over the world. So after you returned and finished school, what happened after you graduated from university? Well, I had really come back to finish my school and then go back to Haifa for extended service. But at that time, the revolution happened, and I was carrying a Persian passport, and I couldn't get my Persian passport renewed because it had the you know Baha'i stamp in it. I mean, Israeli stamp in it, and they knew that I was a Baha'i. So, of course, I could not, unfortunately, go back to Haifa. 
but I applied and was accepted and went to work for Baha'i International Community in New York for a while. You said the revolution. So this is the revolution that occurred in 1979 that formed the Islamic Republic of Iran? Correct. And because you had a Persian passport, they knew you were Baha'i and they knew that you had an Israeli stamp in there. And so for those reasons, you couldn't, you couldn't travel or, or what, what was it that kept you from going back to Israel? If I could not renew my passport because they had this application that asked that forced you to write uh, your religion, so if you wrote Baha'i, they wouldn't give you a passport, and I didn't want to write anything different. So I I was passportless for a while. But uh, since I had been in the country for ten years prior to that, of course, I was able to apply for citizenship. My hope was that I could go and work at the the Baha'i International Community in New York while I waited to receive my American passport. That's how I ended up in New York. And what is the Baha'i International Community? Baha'i International Community is a non-governmental organization recognized by United Nations as representing the Baha'i world community. It is a non-governmental organization like all the other non-governmental organizations that represents different causes. And what was your job there? I went there as an uh, office administrator. I had been a translator when I worked uh, in Haifa, Israel. From, uh, I translated from Persian into English. I went there to the Baha'i International Community both as a translator but also as an office administrator. And how long did you work there? I worked there for a short period of time. During that interval, I met my husband, my current husband, Shannon Javid, and Shortly after Baha'u'llah destined that we would be married, and then he lived in Massachusetts at that time and worked there, and therefore I, I left my position at the Baha'i International Community and moved to Massachusetts. And how long were you in Massachusetts? We were there for about three years. Following that, Shannon was uh, transferred to Mobile, Alabama, <laughs> and so uh, we moved to Mobile, Alabama. And how long did you live in Mobile, Alabama? We lived there for two years. That was also a profound experience. I think that for the first time I realized the difference between South and North and how the teachings of Baha'u'llah were needed in that area because the racial prejudice was obvious and certainly visible in the way that people were treated. We were also impacted by that as uh, as people who were not from that area, but not as much as people of color. That was a great, great, great experience. We started firesides there for the first time, continued it for once every month, and I was really, really thrilled to see the growth of the community in the, in the two years that we were there. And what are firesides, Manas? Fireside is a small informal gatherings where people who are interested in the spiritual matters get together and talk about those topics. And, of course, Baha'is talk about the faith and the teachings of Baha'u'llah. After those two years, where did you go after that? At that time, Shannon was transferred to Northwest. So we moved to Washington State in 85, and I've been living here since. So once we had children, and we have two boys, once they were born, I made a very conscious decision to stay home with them and, and raise them myself. And so I left the workplace and stayed home 
our son Paul and then Patrick came along and I really, really wanted to devote the time that I thought they needed at the beginning of their development. But once they started their kindergarten half day and went to school, I went back and received my master's in English literature and business administration and then continued on and received my doctorate. So I stayed with them and I was always home for them, but I took the advantage of the time and finished the higher education that my parents had always wished for me to have. And then after that, I started back again in the corporate world. How long did you work in the corporate world? After you got your PhD? I have been working since 2000. So I started with Microsoft for several years, and now I moved on to a high-tech consultancy called Avanard. In the meantime, you started a foundation? I think that I was one of the founders, one of the three people who sat around the table one day and on a napkin uh, conceived Mono Foundation as, a, as an organization that we wanted to put in place in order to enable us to help with the educational initiatives that we had known and that we thought that we could support. So that was in 1998. And what's the significance of the name Mona Foundation? Mona was a 16-year-old girl in Shiraz, one of the cities in Iran. She was a very, very popular girl in high school, very beautiful but also very service-oriented and spiritual in heart. She worked as a volunteer in um, orphanages while from the time she was 12 years old and then, of course, had taught children classes uh, as uh, she grew up she became older. At the time of the revolution, because she was a Baha'i and was teaching Baha'i classes, she was arrested and hung And her story is a very, very moving story. So when we were trying to name uh, the foundation, you know, the foundation is focused on supporting grassroots educational initiatives and raising the status of women and girls in the U.S. and abroad. And we felt that Mona was an inspiring figure, uh, both because she was charitable in heart and because she was devoted to the education of children. And so we felt that it was appropriate to name Mona in her honor and continue the work that she had left unfinished. Now, why did you feel that you needed to also target the United States in encouraging girls to be educated? I think that education as we know it and development as we know it, we can all learn to get there. So education is not all about learning how to read or write or math or sciences. Education is also about understanding how to serve others and how to help communities and our own environments to grow and develop for the better. So in that sense, we felt that the children in the U.S. also needed to be educated in that vein as do elsewhere. Of course, there's a different types of focus in, in the U.S. and abroad. And there are also a lot of people in the U.S., a lot of kids in the U.S. who do not receive the proper education that we would want to give our children. So we felt that our service could be used in both here and abroad. Can you describe for us some of the most significant initiatives that the Mona Foundation had funded or created? So Mona Foundation supports social economic development projects 
that are really homegrown, grassroots, and are initiated by someone at the local level in response to the needs of the community. That's one. Second is that our philosophy is that in order to make any difference or contribute to the social economic development of any community, that we need to be in for the long partnership with each of the projects that we have adopted to support. Because of that, we've seen many of the projects that we began supporting about 10 years ago to grow in tremendous ways and ways that we had not anticipated at that time. So to give you an example, there is a wonderful social economic development project called ADCAM in Brazil. It started as an orphanage with 300 children. The wonderful family who came to the area who wanted to start serving the community and began really picking up the kids off the streets. The street children of Brazil are famous, and at that time, a lot more of them. And so they started as an orphanage, and over the next six to seven years, began adding two classes a year and became a full K-12, and then decided that they could not scale out, and the needs were much greater than they could meet, and therefore they began a two-year teacher certification program so that they could teach and train teachers to provide the wholesome education that they were offering, which was not only reading and sciences and math or whatever, but also service to the community. It's a very, very strong component of their education. So they added a two-year teacher training college. And then after that, about in, in uh, 2005, they applied and received a million-dollar grant from government of Brazil to begin and built a four-year technical college that now offers 16 tracks of education and has 4,000 students. So that is one example of a social economic development project that is started by an individual initiative that has grown through several years of development and that is connected directly to the community that responds to the needs of the community that we have stayed with and supported in many different ways. That is just one example of the projects that we have supported. And what criteria are you looking for when funding or supporting a project? You know, Warren, I don't think that anyone knows what a global model of development looks like. We really don't know what a social economic development looks like. We are learning what it means, and we are, as we try our hands in different ways. But there are a couple of things that are obvious. One is that it has to, a social economic development has to, and the criteria, therefore, that we have, it has to be homegrown, so a grassroots We believe that education is the key and the center of making things better, and therefore our focus and passion is around educational initiative. Another criteria is that all these projects have to serve humanity regardless of race, religion, background, nationality, gender, economic status, etc. So it's a service to really the children of the community. Another one is that they certainly have to be the master and participate in the process of their own development. Our role is to support where needed in a small measured ways to help them grow in the ways without hampering them. So developing capacity as the, at the grassroots is at the core and the principle that uh, we certainly require. 
And of course, uh, the most important criteria is that the, that the community and the, everyone who's involved, including Mona Foundation in their support, that they continually learn from the experience, that they act, they consult, they act, and they reflect on the results and therefore continually try to grow and develop from there. So those are some of the criteria. And you mentioned various forms of support in addition to monetary support. I was wondering if you could describe some other aspects of support for these projects that the Mona Foundation provides. One is, of course, funding different projects. The other one, sometimes we provide them volunteers who go and stay with the project for or with the initiative for two, three months, six months, one year, and help in different aspects of it. There have been times where some of these initiatives have come to us and specifically has, have asked for support in providing them with technology or technology labs or curriculum of different kinds or books or supplies or other educational-related needs that they've had. So materially and human resource support as well as sometimes a structural support as they have required it. How do you get the funds that you need to support these grassroots projects? I think that this is really the most moving part of our experience with Mona Foundation is to really discover that there are so many individuals and people and organizations who want to do good, who want to and really like to participate in this process of making our world better, but they just don't know where to go or that they cannot trust a organization to go with. There are a couple of principles that set Mono Foundation apart. One is that we give 100% of all designated contributions straight to the projects. We also give 97% of all contributions given to general fund to the projects we support. So our overhead is extremely low, and we, of course, provide very clear accounting of where the funds go, and we really take very good care as the stewards of the trust of people of where the money is spent and how the money is spent. So through years of work and through years of demonstrated accomplishments, I think we have the support of thousands, many, many individuals, many, many individuals, a lot of foundations, a good number of small businesses and organizations and very large corporations through their campaigns and giving funds. And how many projects is the Mona Foundation currently supporting? We currently support about 21 projects in 12 countries. And I believe you have a fairly well-known spokesman supporting your foundation? Are you referring to Rain Wilson? Yes, I am. Yes, Rain Wilson is a wonderful friend. He is from the Northwest. We knew his father when he was here. And so when he started becoming really known, we reached out to him to see whether he would consider being associated with Mono Foundation as one of the charities that he supports. And after looking at different charities, he selected Mono, amongst others, I I believe. But he calls Mono Foundation the perfect charity. (laughs) (laughs) If you ask him why, he says, he says a couple of things. First of all, our overhead is so very minimal. And second is that we're not the type of foundation that goes and tells these projects what to do. Mm. Uh, You know, we find the projects that are already there, that already are working, that already have the support of the local community and already have grown to a place where they're sustainable by themselves. 
we go in not to start the project, but to help them grow and develop in areas where they cannot grow all by themselves. So we don't do the running or the walking for the projects, but we just hold a hand and help them grow and expand where they cannot support themselves. And for those who may not have recognized the name, Rain Wilson is the character on the TV hit series, The Office, Dwight Schrute. If people want more information about the Mona Foundation, where can they get more information? Well, we have an extensive website. You can go to www.monafoundation.org, and you can learn about all the projects we support there. Is there a direction you want to see the Mona Foundation expand to that it currently is not there yet? This is our 10th year anniversary. We were legally formed in 1999, and so this year, 2009, is our 10th year anniversary. I think we have completed two five-year strategic plans. We are starting on our next five years. We have doubled our growth every year, so year over year. We are hoping to grow more in a organic way, but more to be able to reach out to more children and more projects. I think that ultimately we would like to see about 10 other monas. I don't think that one organization like us is sufficient enough to assist and support all the work that is there. We are hoping that we will be able to assist and support others who want to start something like Mono Foundation in support of social economic development projects and hopefully see 10 more Mono in the next 10 years. I think that at the core of Mono Foundation is our commitment to put our faith into action. And whether you are a Baha'i or a Muslim or a Christian or Buddha or whoever, at the core of all of our faith's service to others is the expression of faith. We would like to encourage everyone to become involved in service of some kind to their communities, to their country, and to the world. It is a thrilling experience. I think that once you are involved in the process, that you will never want to do anything different. Anyone can make a difference. I, we would like to say, regardless of how small the steps are, how small we can contribute, every step makes a difference in someone else's life. And our experience has shown over and over and over again, regardless of how ordinary that we all may be, as were the founders of this foundation, that every one of us can make a difference and every one of us has a role to play and that I hope that everyone who hears this message takes this to heart and does something in service to others that will bring the best out of themselves and also out of others. And on a personal level, Madnaz, is there something you would like to do that you haven't done yet? There is so much need, Warren. There is so much more to be done. There is so much... And there's such opportunities we have right now. I wish I could do more of what I do. It isn't that I want to do something different. It's that I want to do more of what I do now. And there's only 24 hours in a day. That's for sure. So if you can stretch the days, I'd be very happy. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mahnaz Javid. 
co-founder of the educational service organization, the Mona Foundation. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
So 
happy and joyful being. Oh God, I will no longer be full of anxiety. No This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.